Do you love your kids? I I do. You you do. Yes. You do what? I love my children. So let me see if I've got this straight, Sean. You've been in jail 33 times. You've been to prison four times. You don't even effing have your kids. Somebody else has them. You've been to, you're on your way to prison for your fourth term. The words that just came out of your mouth are, I love my kids. How in the hell would you treat them if you hated them? Ooh. Ooh. Um, got me there. Yeah, good question. <laughs> here's, here's what your mouth said. Yeah. I love my kids. How would you treat them if you hated them, you selfish SOB? You're in jail on your way to prison for your fourth term. Somebody else is raising your kids because you chose dope women and a lifestyle over them. But you can say, I love them. And the reason why you say that is because it's easy for you to sleep at night and kick your feet up if you can convince yourself you love your kids. But if that's your definition of love, I would hate to be hated by you. Sean Dustin spent time in federal and state prison for drug trafficking and fraud. Upon release in 2006, he had nothing but the clothes on his back, a bag of mail, and legal paperwork. In 2010, he kicked a longtime methamphetamine habit and started the long climb back up the ladder of life. This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast. If you want transparency and authenticity, you're in the right place. This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast, and this is Sean Dustin. What's up, everybody? Thanks for stopping by the show. If this is your first time listening, welcome. If you're returning, welcome back. It's good to have you with us. Sorry about the quality of this recording, or this intro recording. I'm on location in Utah, and I don't have my normal recording equipment with me right at this point. The reason why I'm up here is that after we recorded this episode, David DeRocher asked Shana and I if or actually invited us to come up to uh, Utah to visit the Other Side Academy and kind of see what was going on up here to see how the therapeutic community that he's um, built kind of runs, um, how it works. We got a chance to mingle around and just kind of walk freely through the facility and talk to the students. Uh, we went to the, the thrift store to see how that was run. And how this whole place is funded without any taxpayer money at all, without any grants, without any um, outside uh, help, really, aside from donations. And, uh, yeah, it's, it was a, a really, really, really awesome time. You know, David put us up in a, uh, in a couple of rooms here, Shana and myself, and uh, we were just able to kind of immerse ourselves in kind of what goes on here. I mean, even uh, participating in a one of their, it's called a game night, but basically what it is is it's uh, students are broken up into different groups and they kind of confront each other on their behavior, and we got to uh, sit in and participate in that. And that was pretty. That was pretty cool. It reminded me of when I was uh, sixteen. I was in a therapeutic community. It was actually considered a group home, but it was a uh, a drug treatment center. And I was there for 16 months 
it was kind of the same thing. Uh, a little bit different, but I mean, the same, the same sort of principle and concept is, you know, uh, peers holding each other accountable for the behaviors that they've, you know, uh, just displayed during the week. Uh, and it was, it was pretty cool, man. I, I enjoyed it. I got called out on just sitting there and not saying anything. Cause I was spectating and not really participating. So, uh, one of the, uh, female, uh, students kind of lit me up and, uh, put a, put a little fire under my ass. If you could say, I guess that's what you could say. And, you know, kind of like, dude, what are you doing here? Why are you not participating? So that was, that was interesting. It kind of took me back to, uh, to the days when I was in treatment. And really that's what I was thinking about when I was kind of in there. Um, I was thinking about, you know, back when I was being confronted and, and, you know, the kind of behaviors that I was, uh, displaying while I was in treatment. And it just, I don't know, I would just kind of got lost in that, but she woke me up for sure. I can't remember what her name is, but she, she, she tore into me pretty good. Um, so yeah, uh, this is a great interview. Uh, I really admire and respect David. He, uh, for what he's doing, first of all, and for what he's built out in Utah, Salt Lake city. And if you know somebody out there that's struggling and needs help, can't afford it, uh, is, is, you know, a drug addict, you know, maybe they are in a pretrial phase of, uh, you know, the trouble that they've got in contact David at the other side Academy. And I'll leave all that information, um, in the show notes. Uh, they really want to help people. And the program is free. It's a two, it's a two and a half year commitment or it's a two to two and a half year commitment. Um, so, I mean, that's the minimum amount of time you can stay there, but everything is covered, but you've got to want it. You're not going to just show up on the doorstep and go or, or, you know, call and say, Hey, I need help. Can I come? I mean, you've got to really want to have the help because there's a lot of people out there that want help. And if you're not willing to do the work and you're not ready to change, it's a good chance you probably won't get in, but I mean, keep trying. That's what he did when he went through his program at at Delancey street, um, years ago. And also the whole thing that spurred this thing off was, or kicked this off was, um, David's, uh, Ted talk. And I'll leave that in the comment or in the show notes as well. So, I mean, it's, this is a great episode. Um, yeah. So let's get to the show. This is the nowhere to go, but up podcast. And I am your host, Sean Dustin. Today, I have a very special guest, David DeRocher, who is the uh, executive director, I believe, at the other, the, side, yeah, the other, the other side Academy in Utah. And then we have Shana Bo, uh, who is out of the East Coast. And the reason why we're here is that Shana, at one point, had given me a copy or a link to David's TEDx talk. And I had I watched it. It was powerful. It moved me. And I reached out immediately to David to try to find him. And I did. And I just thought I would have Shana on just because she was a part of this whole thing. And any questions that she may have, I said, why don't you ask him yourself? So that's how we got here. And David, it's great to meet you finally, uh, or see you, uh, virtually. And that's how we're 
doing things these days. Um, and yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to hear your story and, and what you're doing and, and everything that's going on in the reentry space and the therapeutic community at the other side Academy. Welcome. Thank you guys. It's an honor to be here. And I enjoyed our conversation that we had uh, a few weeks back when we got kind of got to know each other a little bit over the phone and thank you, Shana, for, for staying awake through that Ted talk and actually passing it on to Sean. <laughs> I loved it. it. It was like, I started my morning that day one day and it was, um, I just loved what you had to say and the, and, and your story is just powerful. I really loved it. Well, thank you. It's, it's a pleasure to, to get to know both of you and it's an honor to be on your show, Sean. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we're, we'll go ahead and, uh, let you start with your story and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get into what me and Shana and how we are involved in the reentry space, uh, after that. Okay. So, you know, I, as I sit now, I'm 53 years old. I'm the executive director at the other side Academy, but obviously I haven't always been the executive director at the other side Academy. My story began when I was really young. I was about 12 years old. I was the kind of kid that would come home from school and I would steal alcohol out of my dad's booze bottle. And I would have a few drinks and I would replace it with water so that, you know, in my hopes, of course, as a kid, that he wouldn't notice. And it didn't take long before he was coming home from work and he was having a, a drink or two and not getting the desired effect he was looking for. And he quickly realized I was and he wasn't. As you can imagine, that story, uh, that, that conversation didn't go well. And I've never really asked him the question when he was mad at me, if he was mad at me because I was getting drunk at 12 or stealing his alcohol. I'm afraid <laughs> to ask him the question because I think I know the answer. <laughs> but anyway, uh, that, that, that went on for a little while. And, you know, then I started smoking cigarettes and started smoking pot. And between the ages of 13 and 14, I did my first line of cocaine. So mm. it's back in the 80s. Cocaine was expensive. Here's a kid trying to navigate his way through uh, junior high school and high school. And I, when I did my first line of cocaine, it's exactly what I was looking for. It filled that void. It filled all the holes. It made me feel like I was Superman, which was the complete opposite of how I really felt. But that's how I felt when I was high. But could you imagine trying to support a coke habit as a teenager? I literally stole everything you could possibly imagine that wasn't bolted down. And most of uh, that, which was. I was the kind of kid that stole, uh, I got my, I took my dad's wallet, found this safe combination, broke into the safe, stole cash. I would wait for the neighbors to leave next door. I'd be waiting for the car to pull out of the driveway. I'd jump over the backyard fence into the backyard and I'd check to see if their doors were open to go in to steal whatever I could. Mm -hmm. I stole from my siblings, my parents, my neighbors, anything and everything. Nobody was safe. So my criminal behavior started at a real young age. Of course, I just didn't realize then that I was becoming a criminal. Yeah. You know, who would at that age? I was the kind of kid, and I'll, I'm going to pull it out. It's not a, it's not a vial. It's actually it's chapstick. But I was the kind of kid that would go to high school, literally, and I'd have a vial of cocaine in my pocket. And while the teacher was up at the board, I'd be sitting in the back of the class. And when the teacher wasn't looking, I would just sit there and I'd kind of pour the coke in between my pages, whether it was my math class, English, history, whatever it was. And then when the teacher wasn't looking, I'd take the big pen and I'd just pull the big pen apart and I'd use the cartridge and I'd just lean down and I'd snort coke in class. I did this all through high school. Now there's a lot of other things that went on in high school where my parents were trying to get me help, telling me I was a drug addict, sending me to counselors, sending me to therapists and nothing worked because I didn't have a problem. You did. Um, and somehow, some way I managed to graduate high school. Now, while I was in high school, I, I, you know, I dated a lot of women, you know, at that point I had long blonde hair and, you know, just a decent looking kid. I was getting girls pregnant. We were having an abortions while I was in high school. And then I had my first child 
between my junior and senior year. So here's a cocaine addict, literally getting girls pregnant, having a child in high school. I couldn't even take care of myself, let alone have a kid. But anyway, that's a whole nother conversation. Graduated high school. And when I graduated high school, it's still a mystery to me how that happened. I went from cocaine to methamphetamine. And when I did methamphetamine for the first time, that's it. Coke went out the window. I found something that was a little less expensive, lasted a whole lot longer. The come down wasn't as bad. You, you know the story. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, and I was, I was a, a meth head and I was doing meth every day. Now, I never intended to become a drug dealer. That was never my intention. But what I was doing was just buying a little bit, a 16, sell a couple quarter grams, buy a 16, sell a couple quarter grams, just buy a little, sell a little, just to support my habit. Well, I had no idea that I had an entrepreneurial gene in me. I had no idea. And pretty soon I was buying a little more, selling a little more, buying a little more, selling a little more. And then I realized, Jesus, I can make money doing this. And then I'm buying a lot more. And pretty soon I'm buying quarter pounds, half pounds, pounds, and I'm buying pounds of meth a day and literally making tens of thousands of dollars a month. And as you can imagine, it didn't take long before I started getting arrested. Uh, When I got arrested for sales, transportation, loaded firearms, I went to prison. My first prison term was two years. I got out for 59 days. Literally the day I got out of prison, the day I got out of prison, I was on my way back. So two-year prison term, got out. The day I got picked up, on the way home, I was already getting loaded, started the whole same process over again, got busted again, went to prison five-year uh, term. So two-year term, five-year term, got out after that five-year term and stayed out 60 days rather than 59. So at least I'm staying out a little longer. Uh, get busted again, get a six-year prison term. Get out for four months, get busted again, get a 10-year prison term. Now, I fought a lot of those cases, and my 10-year prison term was supposed to be a whole lot longer but I had a lot of cash, got a lawyer, found dirt on the cops and all of those things and was able to get it down to something manageable, right? Mm-hmm. I just had managed 10 years. So two-year term, five-year term, six-year term, 10-year term. And then as you can imagine, I've got out after that 10-year prison sentence, I got busted again. Uh, I'm at a house in Huntington Beach. I'm moving a lot of drugs. I'm, I'm literally, you can see the window behind me, right? I'm, I'm, in a, I'm weighing up dope. I'm getting ready. And I look out the window and I see a helicopter hovering really high in the sky. It's just sitting there. Now, usually you see the helicopters floating around the city, just kind of patrolling the city. This helicopter is super, super high. As I look out the window, it's just sitting there. And a couple hours go by. I'm done doing what I'm doing. I'm getting ready to make some deliveries. The helicopter's still there. And I think, this is, this is odd. You know, this is weird. I wonder if, nah, couldn't be. I leave the house, get in my car, take off, and the cops were everywhere. Now, they made a deal with the girl at the house who had obviously told on me that they wouldn't come into the house to get me, to coerce me to come out, which mm-hmm. I was going to do anyway. And there was four different agencies, Huntington Beach Police Department, Fountain Valley, uh, Garden Grove, or Huntington, uh, Costa Mesa, and parole. Took them on a high-speed chase. And the reason why I did that is I'd already done four prison terms. I'm in the state of California. I already know if I get busted again, I'm going away for a very, very long mm-hmm. time. And I told many of my friends, if this ever happens again, if I ever get red lighted or ever get pulled over, I'm not stopping. There's just no way because I know I'm going back to prison. So I take them on a high speed chase through Huntington Beach. I'm going down Atlantic. I'm trying to get to a bridge in Huntington Beach so I can throw everything out the window. Uh, it's going to go down into the water. And if they go down there and find it, they got to prove that's what I threw. That was my train of thought. And, you know, it may have worked, but I never made it to the bridge. As I'm going down Atlantic, going south, and I'm getting ready to make a left-hand turn on, on uh, uh, I'm sorry, going down Magnolia and getting ready to make a left on Atlantic, 
there's a roadblock the cops have kind of set up there and I had a decision to make. And a lot like I say in the TED Talk, I the decision was stop, let them arrest me and go to prison forever or go through the roadblock and hope they shoot and kill me. And it's literally that the, it's, it's, everything's happening really fast. It's a very chaotic time. And I decide for uh, uh, B, I'm just going to go through the roadblock, use my car as a battering ram. If they shoot and kill me, oh, well, I don't have to go to prison for the rest of my life. And I approached that roadblock and displaced those cars and made the left-hand turn. And they didn't shoot me, but the cop car closest to me did the pit maneuver, which is the pursuit intervention technique, spun me out, up on an embankment, left the car undrivable. And the next thing I know, they're approaching the car with guns drawn. They pull me out and commenced to giving me one of the worst beatings of my life. One of the last things, because I'm in a strip mall up on the sidewalk, up on the curb, over the sidewalk and into the, into the brush. So there's a lot of people in that parking lot seeing what's going down. And the last thing I remember hearing was, stop, stop, you're going to kill him. Because they were beating me senseless. And truth be told, I won't make excuses for the police, but I had it coming. If you were, if you, all of my cases were for loaded firearms, large amounts of drugs and cash. Some of those guns had cop killers in it. They knew who I was at that time. And they gave me exactly what I had coming. And when I woke up in jail, uh, I realized that I was probably never going to come home again. And when I went to court the first time, my my first offer from the judge was 29 years. That was really sobering. Wow. Two, what? five, six, 10, now 29. Now, over a course of a few months, that 29 years came down to 22. Some of those little ancillary charges had fallen off. But the judge was uh, uh, steadfast. He was emphatic. DeRocher, your deal is 22 years. There is no other offer on the table. You're going to prison for the rest of your life. So I fought my case in the Orange County Jail for a long time, for nearly a year and some change uh, from that first from that first offer. And I was trying to get it down to something manageable, like 15 years, two, five, six, 10, 15 to me was manageable. And thankfully, they never gave me that offer because had they, I wouldn't be sitting here today. Lord only knows where my life would have ended up. But that judge said no, and he said no for a long time. And then, you know, because I wasn't really busy in my cell at night, you know, one day I just did one evening, I just decided to write that judge a letter. And I wrote him four pages front and back explaining my life story and saying, Your Honor, what do you have to lose? Because oh, I wrote Delancey Street a letter. And Delancey Street came and they interviewed me and they accepted me. But the judge said no in no uncertain terms. You're never going to Delancey Street. You're not Delancey Street material. That's what he kept telling me. So that's what prompted me to write the letter. And never once in that letter did I tell him he was wrong in his assessment of me because he wasn't. He was right. But Delancey Street is an organization that helps guys like me, and they've helped 25,000 people graduate and reintegrate back into the community. And in my letter, I said, Your Honor, what do you have to lose? Delancey Street interviewed me. They accepted me. They think they can help me. Why don't you give me a chance? If you send me to Delancey Street and I get kicked out or I split, you can lock me up for the rest of my life. Give me my 22 years and whatever else I pick up in the interim. You've got me. Or the next time you see me is because I'm coming back to say thank you for the opportunity. And about six weeks later, when I went to court in California, you know, you're in California. Yeah. It's a little different. You're in a cage, like a phone booth, but a metal cage, ankle irons, waist irons, handcuffs. And I'll never forget Judge uh, uh, Pacheco telling me that he was going to give me the opportunity of a lifetime. And he's going to let me go to Delancey Street. Yeah. But I have to plead guilty to all of my charges. Uh, sign a deal for 22 years. And when I get kicked out or I split, he's got me for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know if you've ever felt vertigo when you just out of the blue get really bad news, death in the family, something horrible's happened, or really good news. You win the lottery. You kind of go, holy shit, really? Yeah, yeah. 
here I am, you know, going to court countless times, looking at the rest of my life in prison. And the judge just said he's going to let me out to go to Delancey Street. I was completely, I, I didn't even know what to think. I'm like, holy cow. For the last year and some change, I've been fighting my case and I was looking to go into prison forever. And in the next few hours or whatever, however long it takes to get released, I'm getting out of jail. And I don't usually, usually tell this part of the story too often, but it took them all night long to release me. That next morning, my mom and dad, when I got back from court, told them they lived in Vegas. They drove all the way to Southern California to make sure I got from jail to Delancey Street. When I got out of jail, there was a girl there waiting for me, but not the one I was anticipating. I jumped in her car, went across the street, you know, uh, read Bible verses in the parking lot, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. You're on the same page? Yeah. Uh, and had her drop me back off over the front of the jail. And that's where my, my you know, girlfriend at the time actually picked me up and we took off. Hours went by. And I started to feel bad about my decision. And I knew if I didn't go to Delancey Street, I was never going to make it. I called my mom and I will never forget this phone call. It's tattooed on my brain. I could barely understand her. She was in hysterics. She was screaming at me on the phone, saying things I've never heard uh, my mom say to me before. And she said, you've got 15 minutes to get your blank, 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 Southern exposure to your dad and I, or we're leaving. And I told Jennifer to drive me back because they were right across the street. I was in Orange County Jail at Theo Lacey. They were across the street at the block. Uh, there was a hotel there. And, uh, and I got there in time. My mom and dad took me to Delancey Street. But I was this close to making a really, really, another really bad decision and never making it to Delancey Street. So I went to Delancey Street, got there. I was late. They ended up accepting me. And it's a two-year program, right? Two-year re-education facility built for, you know, ex-convicts and guys who have just men and women who completely destroyed their lives. I ended up staying in Delancey street for eight and a half years, two years to beat that 22 year prison sentence, six and a half more years because I completely fell in love with the process. And for the first time in my life, fell in love with me and actually started to like the person I was becoming, but it didn't happen overnight. It took a long time. I realized at a year and a half in Delancey Street that I was nowhere near ready to leave. And that's the beauty of the model there and the model we have here is you don't have to leave on a particular day because the funding's run out. So I asked to stay a third year and they said, absolutely. I had become a good resident there. And then at the end of my about two and a half years when I was going in for commitment again, I, I said I'd stay one more and they talked me into staying two more. So at the end, I would have stayed there for five. But not long after that commitment, Mimi Silbert, the president of Delancey Street, came down to the facility. She's up in San Francisco at headquarters. And I had no idea. She asked to have a meeting with me. We had a meeting. And she says, Dave, how much longer will you stay? I said, I don't know, Mimi. A little while longer. She says, that's not what I'm asking you. Well, what are you asking me, Mimi? She goes, how much longer will you stay? I said, well, I just made another commitment. She says, no. Will you stay five more years? And I thought five more years. And I thought about, I I literally stopped. Here's Mimi Silbert, who is just a a, a saint of a woman who built the Lancey street for people like me and all the others that went there. And I said, I thought to myself, as I looked at my life for the past, you know, nearly three decades and the fact that Mimi was asking me and I said, absolutely. I will. She says, are you sure? I says, yeah. Are you? Now, I had no idea at the time that she had plans. I had no idea why she was asking me other than, you know, I had become a kind of a strength there. Mm-hmm. But not long after that, she uh, gave me the opportunity to run the entire Los Angeles facility. Wow. 200 to 250 residents at any given time. 15 vocational training schools that generated all the revenue because Delancey Street doesn't take any money from the government. 
Here's a guy that had been a drug addict for 27 years, spent most of his adult life in and out of institutions. And Mimi just said, you're now running the LA facility. I said, I have no idea how to do that. She said, figure it out. (laughs) So it didn't take long. And I figured it out because I had already been working on it for, you know, three and a half years that I was there. And it was the best decision I ever made, not just in going, but in staying for a long time and managing that facility because it, it taught me things that otherwise I never would have learned. I had no idea where my life was going. I was a guy that didn't have any real skills. I'm not a barber. I'm not a culinary artist. I'm not a mechanic. I don't, you know, I'm not, a, I, was, I wasted my life yeah, up until yeah. this point. But what I learned was my skills uh, I honed there were, were people skills, helping people like me get from where I was to where I'd gotten, being able to connect with other human beings that suffered from the same things I suffered with and pulling them through that process became my new passion. It literally became my new drug. It was free and there was no come down. And nothing in the world ever made me feel as good as helping another human being. Nothing ever made me feel that good. And I get teared up when I think about it because now today my life is about uh, getting up in the morning. Is how, how can I make a difference in people's lives and going to bed at night wondering what could I have done differently? Who could I have helped more? You know, just making my life about other people is the complete opposite of what I used to do. So after about eight and a half years, I left Delancey Street, graduated, got a job in Southern California doing underground pipeline construction. I was fortunate enough to get my class A license, my commercial license while I was at Delancey Street. So I'm hauling heavy equipment. I'm making more money legally than I had ever made before because I was out of the workforce since the 80s, literally. Mm-hmm. Worked there for a while. Then I get an opportunity to go up into the oil fields in the Bakken in North Dakota. Oh. Now, I don't know if you know anything about the Bakken but it's what we call the wild, wild west. When I say stupid money, here's a guy that had been out of the workforce since the 80s, goes up to the oil field, and I'm making between ten dollars and $15,000 a month. Wow. I'm working every single day. And if you go to the oil fields and you've got a commercial license and you're a hot oiler, that's what I was doing, the money is through the roof. So I took advantage of that, and I was literally making uh, more money legally than I'd ever made, and I was putting it in the bank, and I was having an affair with my checkbook. Literally, just <laughs> my checkbook going, wow, this is great. Just putting money away. But it gave me the opportunity to build a financial uh, foundation so I could start making some other decisions. But I, I learned two things. I learned, number one, that making money was fun, uh, making it legally because the cops couldn't take it from me again. Mm-hmm. But the mm-hmm. second thing was I, I missed the people part. So making money was fun, but saving lives was rewarding. And I enjoyed what I was doing in Delancey Street for free more than I did the work up in the Bakken. Now, I loved going to work every day, but I hated my job. Mm-hmm. It was a meaningless, endless job, but I was making good money. So it, it served a purpose. I came back to Southern California, went back to work for Berkeley Construction, started doing some presentations at a bunch of different programs around Los Angeles, just speaking to the, the residents there. And then through a very serendipitous chain of events, Charlotte Baker, who had been in Delancey Street for 38 years, graduated a few years before I did. She did her whole stay up in San Francisco, actually helped Mimi run the facility, called me and she says, Dave, there's a couple of guys in Utah that want to start a replication of Delancey Street. And I said, you know, I'm on my phone. I'm like, really? You know what I mean? Because I know what it takes to do this. She says, listen, I'm I'm going to go up and meet them this Friday. If they're serious, uh, is this something you'd be interested in? I said, Charlotte, if they're not crazy, of course it's something I'd be interested in. But they've got to be crazy if they want to do something like this. Who are they? She says, I'll just let me go up there and consult for the day. I'll, I'll call you Saturday. She went up and she consulted with them on Friday. She called me Saturday morning and she says, Dave, they're dead serious. I go, really? She says, these are the right guys. And it was uh, Joseph Grenny, 
who's a New York Times uh, bestselling author of four books, Crucial Accountability, Crucial Conversations, Change Anything, and The Influencer. Now, I say The Influencer with emphasis because The Influencer is a book that he wrote about 17 years ago. And there's a chapter in that book, The Influencer, that features Mimi Silver. Think about mm. that connection. Yeah, yeah. He went and interviewed her many years ago when he was writing his books about people in the world that are influencing major change. Mimi was in the criminal field, uh, in the criminal space. So she came back and she says, they're dead serious. And I told him, well, I know one person who can help you do this. Are you? Do you want to meet them? And I said, absolutely. Joseph and Tim Stay, our CEO, flew to Los Angeles. We met at LA Live at Fleming's Restaurant. And we sat down for dinner and I said, don't you dare ask me a question. Who in the hell are you? What is the genesis of thought behind this? What makes you think you can? And I, and I might have used a few other words that I won't <laughs> use now, but I just, uh, who are you? And why would you want to? Uh, you do-gooders, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And by the time they both got done telling me their story, I knew I was in the presence of great men. A couple hours later, when they're done, I'm done. They said, will you help us get this started? Are you willing to come to Utah? I says, I'll go to the moon if you don't quit in six months when it gets hard. Mm. A week or two later, I'm in Utah. We're looking for properties. We find the mansion here at uh, 7th East and 1st South. It's the first property we look at. We look at a dozen more, circle back to this one, and buy both of these properties. Mm. Now, wow. we started the Other Side Academy just over five years ago. We have 95 current students living on property. We own the property on the corner, the one to the north of it, so one to the north of that. We own both apartment complexes across the street, which are quite large apartment complexes. And we, uh, a year ago, bought the assisted living center next door. So inside of five years, we have six properties here. We're the crown jewel of Salt Lake. We wow. have opened up site two in Denver. We have a couple of properties now in Denver. We have 30 students there. And some things that really make the Other Side Academy unique. Number one, we're a minimum two and a half years long, residential. We're completely free. We take no money from the government, city, county, state, federal government, rich mommy and daddy, Medicaid, insurance. When I say nothing, I mean nothing. So people, when I tell them that, they always go, wait a second. You're residential. You're long, really long. And you take no money from the government. Well, then how the hell do you do it? Simple. We own our own social enterprises. Our moving company in Salt Lake City is the number one rated moving company in the entire state of Utah. When you get a chance, go online, look up the other side movers. There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of five-star reviews. You'll be late to your next podcast, I promise you. <laughs> we do about, like I said, 300 moves a, a month. We would do more, but we just don't have the manpower to do more. We turn down more moves than we actually we actually take. We're that, that uh, uh, popular. Our thrift stores, we have two of them here in Salt Lake, and they're the number one rated thrift stores in the entire city. If you walked into one of our thrift stores, most people think thrift store, they think Goodwill, uh, Salvation Army, DI. If you walk into ours, and this is for you, Shana, you'll turn around, you'll walk back out, you'll look at the signage, you'll think you went into Nordstrom's, you'll go back in and go, I'm in the right place. They are that <laughs> nice. It's incredible the difference between our thrift boutiques and all other thrift stores, which is why we're the number one rated thrift store. But just to, 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 to put some context around our social enterprises, in 2017, uh, we accepted the award in 2018. We were awarded the EY Ernst & Young Entrepreneurs of the Year Award for the state of Utah. Our social enterprises are ran exclusively by ex-drug addicts and ex-felons. Exclusively. There's no professional staff here. We do it all ourselves, and we beat every other organization in the entire state. 
we were at the Grand America in Salt Lake City, which is a world-class hotel in a 1,200-person ballroom accepting the award with a bunch of our students. You had to see there. You could probably find it online. Uh, you had to see it to truly appreciate it. So we generate all of our own revenue. And here's why that's important. Should I just keep going yeah, on? Yeah, yeah, go, go. Here's, here's why that's important. Because the government can't step in and screw the model up. They can't go two years. Now, if we were taking government money, if a, if a 30, 60, or 90-day model costs $50,000, who's paying for that? City, county, state, Medicaid, some government agencies paying for it. So they dictate how you do it. Most of your 30, 60, 90-day models have, can boast a 3 to 5% success rate. It's pathetic. Mm. Literally pathetic. But we continue to do it, and we're killing more people than we're helping. Because the first thing they ask Dave DeRocher when he gets there is, Dave, um, are you a drug addict? Uh-huh. Well, how much money do you have? I don't have any. Go die. Now, they don't say those words, yeah. but they say we can't help you because there's no money involved. The transaction can't be made. Now, if I look at mom and dad who are sitting on both sides of me who have already mortgaged their home two times over, and I say, mom, dad, I really need the help. And they're like, we have nothing left but $1,600 to our name. Here you go, drug program. And they go, 1600 bucks. Here's four penicillin. Hope that works. I mean, it's maddening. These models are built around a funding model rather than a helping model. Mm -hmm. Then if I'm lucky enough to get in, on day 29, they come tell me, Dave, pack your bags. It's time to go. But I'm not ready. Pack your bags. It's time to go. But I'm not ready. I've been doing meth for a year. I've been asleep for two weeks. I've been programming for 15 days. What do you mean tomorrow's my last day? I'm going to reoffend and go use again. Pack your bags. It's time to go. And why do we do that? The funding's run out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The funding, no funding. These models are built around a funding model. And we've been doing this in this decade, uh, in this country for decades. When I say we're killing more people than we're helping, we are because we set them up for failure. They leave, and if they're heroin addicts, they go use again after being clean for 30 days and they die. At the other side academy, you can stay as long as you need to. No one's ready on day 30. No one's ready on day 60. No one's ready on day 90. Mm-hmm. We're two years residential. We'll call it 730 days. None of my students are ready on day 730. Day 730 is just the minimum amount of time you can stay. And people leave programs for one of two reasons, because they have to, because they can. Mm -hmm. Funding models, because you have to. Here, because you can. What we allow them to do, and about half of my students are opting to stay longer like I did in Delancey Street, because no one's ready on a set day. Every single drug at you, if you could put all... 50 million drug addicts in this world in the same room, nobody will ever be ready on the same day at the same time. So we give them as much time as they need. Now, what makes us fascinating, long, hard, free, no government funds, generate our own revenue through our social enterprises. And my average student's been arrested over 25 times, over 25. I have a couple people who have been arrested, many over 50, but the aggregate total is just over 25. If you talk about drugs here, you're in trouble. Drugs aren't the problem. Now, go to a lot of the other programs. Drugs are the problem. They are the issue. They continue to do that on purpose to keep cycling the drug addicts back through those programs over and over and over and over again because it's a funding model. Here, we don't believe drugs are the problem because they aren't. Let me explain to you why. We become liars. Have you ever told a lie? All the time I used to. You ever cheat on anybody? All the time. You ever manipulate anybody? You ever steal anything? Mm-hmm. You ever hurt somebody emotionally or physically? Mm-hmm. Me too. 
take the drugs away, you're still a liar, a cheater, a thief, a yep. manipulator, a self-centered, self-seeking, no good. Uh, and But see, these other programs can't tell you that because they have to pussyfoot around, excuse my language. They have mm-hmm. to fluff it and tell you it's mommy and daddy's fault. And it's everybody else's fault. And you have a disease and relapse is part of recovery. And it's okay if you use again. Keep telling drug addicts that and guess what you're going to create? More excuses for drug addicts to use. Mm-hmm. We don't make any excuses here at all. We call you on your shit from the minute you get here in your face and sometimes in very colorful vernacular because sometimes you have to really, uh, uh, I don't know how to put it, but being soft and being easy hasn't worked for decades for some of these people. So now people just like us are going to call you on your behavior and very colorful vernacular at times and make sure you understand how you're acting and who you become and then give you the consequences or whatever that looks like and have you fix your mistakes. But the fascinating thing about this program is it's about behaviors yeah. because you can get people clean and sober all day long, send them to a 30 day model. Hell, put them in jail for six months. If they're in a single cell, they're clean for six months. They're clean for six months. What's the first thing they do when they leave? Go hang out with the people that they, that they, you know what I mean? Go, mm-hmm. go, go to what's familiar. Straight to Flacco's house to pick up. Yep. You know, Flacco, right? Yep. Straight to Flacco's house to pick up. Because who gives a shit if you're clean and sober? Who cares if you're clean and sober? That's not the answer. It's the reward. The answer is whole person change. I described liar, cheater, thief, manipulator, all those things. If you stay in a community of healthy living until you learn to live in a community of healthy living, you take the liar and he gets the opportunity to learn to be honest, learn to be accountable. And the sum of those two things is integrity. If you give us the opportunity to learn to be people of integrity, nothing else matters. Problem solved. If you don't, nothing else matters. Problem persists. It's about behaviors. You get clean and sober for free. If you change those behaviors and you become a person uh, of integrity and you learn to live a value-centered life of integrity, if you recalibrate your moral compass and become a good, decent human being, you won't make those poor choices again. You just won't. So that's kind of my story. That's how I got here to the Other Side Academy, was given the opportunity to help get it started. That's our model open it up for questions. It's, it's yours now. Sorry. It took so long. Yeah, that was awesome, man. I, 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 yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I've said this, uh, uh, I mean, I say this all the time, you know, when I, when I went to prison, um, you know, I did, uh, eight, I did three years total, but 18 in the state and then 18 in federal, in federal prison. I, you have to be in any of those spots long enough to be able to take advantage of any of those programs. Right. Yeah. You know, 18 months is just a, it's just a flyby. It's just a drive by really. Um, but what I had noticed and I didn't realize this until after like a long time after I got out in 2006, I still had more to put on my resume. Uh, by 2010, I had done two, uh, two, uh, whatchamacallit's, uh, uh Violation. yeah, violations. One, one 90 day program got kicked out of there. I didn't get, in, I didn't get in trouble. They couldn't prove that I was on drugs, but I was. And they, yeah. my, my PO was like, ah, you're full of, you're, you're full of it. You're, you're going, you're going to do some, some time again. Yeah. And I did another 90 days. And, uh, what I'd realized is, is that, you know, I was, I was clean and the outside was great, but I never worked on the inside. 
I never worked yeah. on my behaviors. You know, we, we, as, as criminals and drug addicts, we, we have learned behaviors that help us survive in that world. When you go to prison, you have to still use that, that, what you learn to survive in prison now. And it, it just, it, when you don't address it, when you're inside, it, it inevitably is going to come back out sometime. You know, you take, so you said you take away the substances and, and all the other stuff, but you still have all of the, the bad things that come along with it. The behaviors, the lying, the cheating, the yeah. stealing, the emotional, the, the abuse, the, uh, manipulation, all of that stuff is still running rampant through, through, you know, what you're, you're, you're projecting to the people and everything around you. Yeah. So, I mean, I couldn't agree more. Um, Shana, why don't you go ahead and explain, uh, where you fit in here in this situation? Um, you know, what you do, uh, what we're a part of and, uh, what kind of what we're doing. Sure. Um, thank you. And thank you so much for inviting me, Sean. <laughs> I've never been on a podcast before, so yay me. <laughs> this is exciting. Um, so I work in the work, but on a, on a different phase of it. And I have some questions um, for you, Dave. I'm an investigator at the Federal Public Defender's Office, and um, most of my work goes in pretrial. And of course, most of my clients end up pleading guilty. It's just the unfortunate statistic. Um, but there are cases that I get where I can put together a mitigation package, whether that's a sentencing video whether that's a reentry um, sort of an option or a mitigation package such that we can try to ask for a misdemeanor or pretrial diversion. And pretrial diversion in the federal system almost never happens. Like right. never. I can count on one hand um, the times I've I've seen the offer and 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 maybe one time that it's actually been accepted. So I also get a lot of viol- federal um, probation violation cases. And this, the sad thing to me about that is here's a man that's been or a woman that's been through the system, come back out on the other side and totally failed or failed to a degree such that their case is back sitting on my desk. The big question is, is, of course, why? You know, and I get to hear the story of, you know, how the family crumbled, how the probation officer is a dick, the, the communication breaks down between the client and the probation officer or very just straightforward, just went back to using again, you know, simple, like, man, I'm so stressed out. Uh, Yeah. I smoked a bit of weed. It's really no big deal. Right. Or, or something harder. But so from, I also have um, my, my child's father has been cycling in and out of the County jail since I met him for alcoholism, basically. You know, I've, I've watched him struggle and I just always encourage him, but he just hasn't um, got out of his victim and uh, mentality and the yeah. mentality of like what his responsibility is in, in his circumstances and behavior. And I'm, I'm just hopeful that that day will come. So in this whole, uh, the work that I do day to day and my connection to to the system through my my child's father, my ex-husband served three years in in a Cuban prison. I've been around like I've had these close relationships with with men that have um, some criminal behavior that's part of their life. So just I, I, I understand closely that mentality. And 
I was just sitting here one day looking at my backyard thinking I want to turn my backyard into this oasis of tree houses and for people coming out of prison and, and make an urban garden and just make it this beautiful healing center. And then and I, I got really excited about this vision and I thought, I, I don't know how to do that. You know, it's just this dream. So I started this um, group on Facebook called Reentry Projects Mastermind with the intention of just connecting with people that are passionate about creating change and, and helping people to heal themselves. And, you know, I met Sean <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I, I do regular posts on, I, I keep it really positive or that's my intent to like, what are the solutions? What's working? Not, you know, there's tons and tons of Facebook groups about prison sucks Prison's horrible. They're not feeding them. They're doing this and and stop going. Stop going. (laughs) Yeah, it's not exactly. And it's not advancing the conversation in my mind at all. There's not solution focused. You know, I guess it's a place for some camaraderie of sort of misery, perhaps. I just wanted something to be like, let's where are the people that are making this shit work? And let's all get together. So um, here we are. And we, we're, we're really working on, um, and I'd love to pick your brain on what's your ideas, um, Dave, on coming together as a sort of alliance of these solution-driven people and organizations to spread this out like you're doing from, from Los Angeles, San Francisco to Utah to, to Denver. Like, let's let's make this <laughs> spread this needs to you know the first the the first thing we need to do we've we're getting away this country is getting away from the accountability component we make excuses for everybody and you know i don't want to get into politics and all of that but i'm telling you the problem that we have today is we do not hold people accountable we have now uh, ironically you're in the federal you're a federal investigator i've got Mm -hmm. about six or seven students here now from the federal system a couple years ago i was able to get in and we've gotten some of them sentenced here and it's more difficult in the federal you know that already Mm -hmm. you've got the mandatory minimums and all these things but i was able to get some of them here and they're doing exceptionally well a couple of them are already graduates doing extremely well so i'd like to further our conversation were you able to get them pre-trial like and get make it a sort of a alternative sentencing option Oh, wow. Yep. I've got probably, I'd have to go down my pop sheet here, my population sheet, four or five of them still here currently. And a few of them are now graduates doing extremely well. They all came out of the federal system. Um, And and that, that was a real, you know, feather in the cap being able to get in and do that. Now there's just as many, if not more that we weren't able to get, but if you get one, you won. You get as many as we have, you know, we, that grand slam on, on steroids. So I would love to have another conversation with you maybe uh, another time about what you could do to maybe get some of these people. You've got the videos. You've got the Other Side Academy. Is how do we get some of the people you're dealing with that you think uh, would, would benefit from a program like this? Because in the federal system, and, and I want to get back to, to Sean's thing about programs in jail or prison. Listen, they don't work. I'm going to tell you why they don't work very well at all. Because in order for you to truly change who you are as a person, you have to learn to set boundaries and you have to be accountable. We call mm-hmm. it 200% accountability, which means I'm 100% accountable for me and I'm 100% accountable for Sean. If I see Sean do something wrong, I call him on it and I say something. That's how we keep TOSA, the Other Side Academy, so clean. We've been here for over five years and have never had a single incident of a dirty drug test 
given to adult parole and probation. There's never been drugs in the facility because we are 200% accountable. So now let's go to jail and prison to the programs in there. You can go to the program, you can get out of your cell, you can pass kites back and forth, you can exchange all those things. And that's usually why people go so they can get out of their cell. But you don't get the opportunity to set boundaries with people because you can't and you can't be accountable. Because if I tell on Sean because he snuck some dope in, I might get away with it on that yard because we're in a program yard. But the minute I go to a P yard, I'm getting stabbed. Mm -hmm. So you can't be 200% accountable. And that's something we have to learn to do. So very seldom do you find a program inside a jail or prison that allows you to be accountable, set boundaries, be honest, be open, be transparent. And that's the balm for our wounds. If we don't pick those things up, we're going to fail again. We have right, to and there's such safety in that too, Dave. Like to be able to do that openly and honestly, that creates that is sounds like it would be that's, the- how, that's how human beings connect. Mm-hmm. If I know that Sean's doing something wrong, if I care, if I don't give a shit about him, and I see him over the corner speaking and whispering with some girl, and I just turned a blind eye, that's the shit we did on the street. I'm allowing him to come to a program and practice the same behavior that brought him here, and I turn a blind eye because I don't want to say anything. That's me just being a selfish, no good SOB. Now, if I see him do that, I go, Sean, we don't we don't tell secrets here. And I go let the person in charge of him know so he can get brought in and talk to him about his behavior. And then given the consequences and he gets an opportunity to change that behavior, that's me caring about another human being. We get it twisted in the community all the time. That's why I do so many presentations all over the country and around the world, a lot of times to corporate America, because corporate America is... E-F-F-I-N-G, effing sick. They put blinders on, right? They don't want to say anything. They got paychecks uh, involved. Now, could you imagine years ago if somebody would have said something to Harvey Weinstein when they were having all those kids marched up to his room and he was destroying all those young kids' lives? How many kids' lives got destroyed because nobody said anything? Or Wells Fargo a number of years ago when there was a a financial incentive to open up millions of fictitious accounts. Mm-hmm. What if somebody would have said something? How much money would have been saved? How about Tom Brady at the Super Bowl a couple of years ago when it was cold and he asked the, the uh, uh, equipment manager to let some air out of the football? Would that have changed the result of that game? But the equipment manager didn't say anything. In corporate America, no one says anything. And if you're a whistleblower, you're looked down upon. That's why our country is so sick because people don't hold each other accountable. And yeah. the so yeah. at the other side of the anatomy and at this program, it's crucial that you do that. Yeah. That, that's, I'm sorry. Go ahead. John. Oh, no, no. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, so one of the things that, that I really would like to, to try, and I think that this is a, a very important is taking when, when somebody releases from, from, uh, incarceration and they're released right back into the same community, that's just a recipe for failure, irregardless. I feel like they should be, you know, when you release, you should release to another area if you want help. Like, you know, don't go to the same area if you're going to try and get help for yourself. Go to a different area. Like, you know, if you're from Florida, come to California, to a program in California. If you're from, you know, X, Y, and Z, you know, go somebody, somewhere different because it takes away the ability for you. Like you said, you know, as soon as you got out and, you know, that you were going to go to Delancey Street, you were already on the phone and you had people picking you up and, and, you know, hanging with, with the girl and, you know, all of these, all of these peer pressure type of, of, uh, things that are, are hindrance are hinderers, not helpers. 
And, you know, it, it takes away that, that option, you know, the option of who can I call? Shit, I can't call anybody. I don't know anybody here, you know? So it's, you have no choice either, you know, succeed or leave, you know, that those are your only two choices. And so I think that's a very important uh, element that needs to happen in, in when you're releasing out of somewhere and we're, we'll talk about something. I have another, another idea that I want to uh, talk about with you, but I'm not going to talk about it on the show because I don't want to give it out publicly and <laughs> have somebody take it. Not yet. Not <laughs> <laughs> you trademark it, right? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I would be happy to, to, you know, model it and move it to wherever it needs to be, but you know, it's not to that point yet. And, you know, I just, you know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, I was curious if I may jump in here, um, Dave, what, what's the process for being accepted into, um, into the stand together foundation? How does somebody apply and get accepted? So we, we became part of the stand together foundation. I I'd say three, three and a half years ago, Mm -hmm. uh, Tim, my CEO and myself, Tim said, come on, Dave, you got to go do a presentation. We were up at the U and we did a presentation. I had never heard of Stand Together, knew nothing about them. Lunchtime, they fed us lunch. I did a presentation. We were chosen to be one of the uh, catalysts in Cohort 5. We went to, uh, now, Charles Koch has an institute, the Charles Koch Institute, and they teach us the, uh, uh, God, what is that philosophy? Uh, Market-based management, MBM, market-based management philosophies. So we went to Washington. We went to Washington for two of the courses and then San Diego for the last one. Did you see the two videos I did with Stand Together? No, mm, I haven't. No. Oh, I didn't. I, what is your what is your cell number? Can you say uh, it? We not want to say it on here. Oh, I'll um, I'll put it in the comments here. Okay. Yeah, and then I'll send you or I'll, I can send them to Sean and he can send them off to you. However, we want to do it. But Stand Together, then we became a partner with Stand Together. We were one of. They, they, they'd interviewed 10,000 different nonprofits and there was about 200 nonprofits at the time that they had chosen. So we went through the market-based management strategies. Then they started helping us. Uh, hang on one second. Okay. Um, then they started helping us financially with training and we've just become remarkable partners with them. So you have to apply with Stand Together as a nonprofit uh, in your space or whatever that field is. Then they will, they will vet you to see if you're, the organization that you're starting or the organization you're a part of fits into their wheelhouse. They are an absolutely incredible organization. Over computer walked over there. I got a picture of me and Charles Koch. Uh, how did I meet Charles Koch? This is probably the richest guy in the richest guys in the world. And I'm at dinner with Charles Koch with the Koch Foundation, you know, the or the Koch uh, Book Industries. But it's just been a great opportunity to learn a lot about uh, uh leadership development, organizational development, market-based management strategies. And what he's been able to do with a hundred and some odd thousand employees around the world. So he's teaching nonprofits how to do the same thing. Wow. So that's been our relationship with them. And it's been fascinating. I've had an opportunity and I'll send you the videos that Stand Together did. They put a lot of money into it. and They've gotten a lot of uh, uh, exposure. And the reason why I do those things, it's stressful for me to do all of that. It takes a lot of time. I don't feel like, anyway, it doesn't matter how I feel. But I do them because people like you watch them. And then we get people here as a result of it. You're watching, you see this, the, the TED Talk, or you see the Stand Together video, and your brother is addicted to drugs, and he ends up here because I put all those hours into that damn video. That's why I do them, and that's why it's really important, because the more of that stuff we do, the more exposure we get, the more exposure we get, the more lives we save. It's that simple. Mm-hmm. 
And Stand yeah. Together has been a catalyst for us in helping us uh, uh, really get the exposure. And they've really helped us a lot financially as we've made some of our acquisitions because we're a profitable nonprofit. I want to, on three, say that out loud. One, two, three. Profitable, profitable nonprofit. nonprofit. It almost sounds like a bad word, right? Because you never hear anyone <laughs> say that. When was the last time you heard a nonprofit say profitable nonprofit? We were profitable in month, month 17, covering all of our uh, uh, operational costs. If we weren't expanding and buying other properties and going to other cities, we wouldn't have to reach out to our donors and stand together for help. But because we are doing that, that's when we ask for, for some help. And Stand Together has been very generous in helping us acquire some of these properties so we can save more lives. Wow. That's so cool. So let's just say, like, my baby's father. I say, hey, um, call up Dave. He's going to help you. He's never been out of the state of Florida in his life. <laughs> he's been, you know, drowning out whatever pain he's have, he has that he hasn't yet really shared with me, but I know it's there since he was 14 and he's the oldest of six kids. You know, how would somebody like him, for example, um, get some help? Oh, let me, let me, yeah, I want to get back to that. What is his name? Marquise Hearn. If he called me and said, Dave, I went online. I looked at the videos. I see the other side Academy. It's a model I'm interested in. I would interview him over the phone. If we accept him, we have to get him here. I have actually put up my own money to get people people on a bus from across the country and get them here. If I, I, I can send them, them there, the <laughs> huh? I will send them there. Now there's two ways you can come to us. Mm-hmm. At the other side academy, we're open 24 seven. You can walk through our front door, take a seat on our bench. We will interview you. If we accept you, you start that day. You need nothing, no money, no clothes. Hopefully, you have some on when you come to us. But no <laughs> money, no clothes, no insurance, nothing, or the vast majority of people write us a letter from the county jail pre-sentence like I did Delancey Street. We go to all the county jails. We do the interview because you wrote us a letter explaining your situation, asking for help because you have to take control of that. You need to say, hi, I'm John Doe or I'm Marquise Hearn. I'm in jail. I want an interview. My life's a mess. Would you please come interview me? And if we do, you get a letter of acceptance that you can take to your judge, prosecutor and public defender. And then they can sentence you here in lieu of you know, 22 years like they did me, yeah. depending on what the sentence is. Those are the two ways you can come to us. But let me tell you something. I'm going to share some insight with you that I don't usually do, but I'm going to because I like both of you. <laughs> the interview is a little bit different than uh, it's not just, okay, um, name, address, drug of choice, um, how long you've been using. Okay, cool. We'll get back with you. It isn't like, mm-hmm. it's like, Sean, did you write us a letter? Yes. Why? Because I have a problem. And I need well, help. What your What's your problem? I'm a meth. Me? No, I'm a meth addict, and I've been using drugs for 18 years, and I can't. And my life is unmanageable, and I can't. And I can't go on anymore. Well, that that much is probably true, but I'm going to probably use some language uh, during the interview that I can't right here on this mm-hmm. podcast. But I'm going to start talking to you about your behaviors, and then I might even get to a point. Do you have kids, John? Yeah, I have a daughter. So let's just say I'm doing the interview with you right now, uh, Sean. Do you have a child? Do you have children? Yes, I do. I have uh, a daughter that I lost uh, uh, my parental rights to uh, when I was out there doing my deal. And then I have one that's three years old currently. Do you love your kids? I, I do. You, you do? Yes. You do what? I love my children. So let me see if I've got this straight, Sean. You've been in jail 33 times. You've been to prison four times. You don't even effing have your kids. Somebody else has them. 
You've been to, you're on your way to prison for your fourth term. The words that just came out of your mouth are, I love my kids. How in the hell would you treat them if you hated them? Ooh. Ooh. Um, got me there. Yeah, good question. <laughs> here's, here's what your mouth said. Yeah. I love my kids. How would you treat them if you hated them, you selfish SOB? You're in jail on your way to prison for your fourth term. Somebody else is raising your kids because you chose dope women and the lifestyle over them. But you can say, I love them. And the reason why you say that is because it's easy for you to sleep at night and kick your feet up if you can convince yourself you love your kids. But if that's your definition of love, I would hate to be hated by you. You don't even know what the word means. Now, sometimes people, Sean, sometimes people will tell me in the interview that I'm crazy. And they might be right, but that's not a conversation you get to have with me because I'm interviewing you. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they'll go, no way, I'm father of the year. Okay, Sean, father of the year. I'll ask mm-hmm. them, uh, do you have your kids come visit you in jail? And sometimes they'll go, yeah, you bring your kids to jail. Yes, you subject them to jail. You selfish, you bring your kids yep. to jail. Yep. They've got to go through that process with the cops and get uh, lose their dignity. And the mother has to bring them. Mm-hmm. You bring them here. Then they see you through the glass then you're smiling and they're crying and you're laughing. And then they go to school on Monday and they tell their friends how cool their daddy is. Where the hell do they end up in 10 years? Same place. Who taught it to them? Me. I thought you loved them. Well, I guess I love myself more and didn't even know it. It's because the reason (laughs) why we do that is because it makes us feel good. Look, everybody, uh, F trophies. Mm -hmm. Look, and we use, and then we use them. And on the way out of that visit, when the kids come visit you, you tell baby's mama, uh, oh, by the way, don't forget to put the money on my books on your way out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. use the kids as chess pieces. Yep. 100% of the time, we don't even know what the word love means. Let me give mm-hmm. you another example. And I'll have this conversation in an interview. This is a syringe. Can you see it? Mm-hmm. It's a pen. Yeah. But <laughs> all of us have been in relationships with people that were using drugs with us, right? Or we're in a relationship with someone who isn't. But let's say, Sean, that you're dating somebody. You're using. She's using. Here's the outfit. We put it in our arm. We get loaded. Then we hand it to her and we go, here you go, honey. I love you. Mm -hmm. How many times have we done that? We're doing things that can kill each other and then saying, I love you. Drug addicts don't even know what the word means. They have no idea, but we use that word. It's the most overused word in the English dictionary. Homeboys in prison are clapping hands. I love you, homie. Love you, homie. And then we put a razor blade in their hand and go, go cut that guy. Love yeah. you, homie. We don't uh, even know what the word means. Yeah. You're, you're right. You're right. Because if you're doing drugs and you're committing crimes and you're going to jail and you're going to prison, you don't love you. And if you don't love you, how in the hell are you going to love somebody else? Yeah. Yep. Get over it. So those are the things we teach you at the Other Side Academy. And that's part of the interview process. We're not easy on you on the interview process. We don't sugarcoat anything. If you can't take the raw truth, if we can't punch you in the gut a few times to see if you can own who you are and who you've been, if you can't do that, you'll never become the 2.0 version. If you can't admit that you're all of those things, then there's nothing to change. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. Um, and that's, uh, you know, when I went to, uh, Thunder Road when I was 16, uh, that was in Oakland and it was a, uh, same, same sort of thing, but it was a, a live in treatment center. They had a hospital side that the, the rich parents would send their kids to. And then you'd have the, uh, court side where you get sentenced there for long periods of time. And, uh, you know, that, that's, that's where my first, uh, uh my first 
experience with the bench and uh, stews, uh, being on the hot seat, you know, where you have a whole group, you know, you, you, I guess they call it contracts. You're holding contracts with other people. And that's when, when the facility starts to get sick, when you got tons of people that are, are lying and cheating and, and you know what I mean? And so these, these hot seats and, and, and stews, there would be, it'd be like a three day thing where you can't talk to anybody. And if you're not in those, if you're not in those stews, you're, you're, everybody's on the bench. And you can't talk, you can't do anything. And then when it is your turn to get on the hot seat, you have everybody going around and, you know, pretty much telling you about yourself. And that's where all the contracts get broken. I want to confront you on the fact that you, you know, me, I was a manipulator. Like I would go, I would find ways to get into the kitchen and I'm not working in the kitchen, but I'm help. I manipulated the, the kitchen worker who's in charge to get in there and help her. And as everybody else is having the regular meal, I'm coming out with a, with a egg omelet and all this other stuff, sit down in there. Like, yeah, that's, that's right. That's right. Yeah. But that's, you know, that's, that's the sickness. You know what I mean? That's, that's a part of the addiction and, and, and all of that. And so, yeah, it was brutal, man. And my, my six month, uh, sentence, which I, I, I chose that because it was, it was co-ed and it was, you know, the, the nine month sentence or the six month sentence. What I didn't understand is in a therapeutic community or a treatment center, it isn't about time. It's about progress. And my six months turned into 16 and, you know, eventually I had to get real and stop BS in the system. And, uh, you know, I did, and, but I mean, it wasn't, I was so young that I didn't appreciate the opportunity that I had. And, and, you know, I, I continued on until I was 35, um, or early thirties when I got out. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I, I, I'm, I'm a fan of what you're doing and the way that you're doing it. And I believe it's, it's the way, you know, because, and, and I'm going to, I want to play a, a clip real quick. Uh, it's not long, but it's a, it, it's part of your, your Ted talk that really, really stood out to me. So let's do this real quick. I'm going to share screen. In the common area, while they were sitting in the sectional, I was addressing them. One of the guys who was managing the facility at the time came by and it looked like a prison gang meeting. And he blasted me for it right there on the floor. Loud enough for everybody to hear within a mile's earshot. He absolutely embarrassed me and he, he humiliated me because he was right. I was doing exactly what I had done in prison and why did I come there? to change. No counselor could have told me that. I wouldn't have listened. Some dude in a white lab coat trying to tell me what it's like to be in prison wouldn't have been credible. But when somebody just like me, who's been there and done that, gives it to me raw and uncut until I hear it and own it, that works. That brings me back to the point I want to make today. There is a way to help guys like me, but it is not in trying to fix them. It is in inspiring them to fix themselves. Believe me when I tell you, it works. All we need is more therapeutic communities like Delancey Street or the Other Side Academy. That's powerful, man. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the truth. And I, I believe I, you know, we, we had that same conversation when we talked uh, the last time. And, uh, it, it, it really is. It takes people that have gone through it to, to help others get through it. And 
the, the, you know, we, we can talk about all the problems of the court and the, the jails and the prisons and how they don't work. But the bottom line is, is it's going to take people like me, like you that have been through there and other people to, to take the reins and start mentoring people and start stepping up and helping where we can. And, yeah. uh, that, that's where I'm at. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting closer and closer and closer through this podcast to, to reaching out to people and getting information and talking to other people and making connections here, making connections there. And at some point it's going to take me where I need to be in, 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 in doing what I need to do to help others and stop, stop this, man. It's, uh, it's, it's crazy how many people are, are locked in prisons and the statistics are staggering, man. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, like, on that note of, you know, peers helping peers, it takes the burden off of, off of the family a little bit, because here in my situation, I got this letter over the weekend that's like, you need to do this so I can get better, and it's all your fault. You didn't let me stay there indefinitely, so I'm here because of you. I was yeah. like, okay, you know, and I, I showed him the letter back to, I, I sent him a letter like, look what you just wrote me. I'm raising our child by myself. You know, if you're going to keep with that mentality, there's, I can, there is no help I can give you. I would just be enabling you if you were to come here and live in this home that I've sacrificed for. No, you know, so it's going to take family, like y'all teaching families that they cannot be the fix. They they aren't the fix for their loved one. You know, and and me and my work too. I, I met this this mother who picked up her son after he'd been in a federal prison for 10 years and not just one federal prison. He had tried to take his life in a federal prison over, I'm at the third one that I found in his records. Or he's crying for his mother because they keep transferring him and he keeps going through the initiation at each prison that he's taken to. And he's not that guy. He's like, I'd rather die than somebody else try to disrespect me and try to kill me. He goes home on a Greyhound bus, meets his mother at at the station. His kids are now teenagers. They were little children in elementary school when he went in. His wife has fallen apart into a crack addiction. Mm-hmm. They've been raised by extended family members all over the state of Florida. They don't know what it is to have a father, but he wants to be one. And instead of focusing on himself, the first thing he did when he got to his mother's house was figure out where his four children were and get the girls up there with him so that he could be a father. Before he ever had the opportunity to learn to stand on his own two feet. Exactly. And of course, I have his case back on my desk. And I'm only at the tip of the iceberg of the um, insane amount of trauma that this young man who's my age has been through. He's at a federal medical facility right now, get competency restored. He ain't incompetent. He's sick. He's, He's incredibly traumatized. And his only form of protest is his own silence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I talk to him about his own empowerment. He won't, he still won't talk to me, but he'll nod and he'll communicate with me through nonverbal signals. I, I, I've just 
self-disclosed with him enough that I've been able to connect with him so that he believes me and knows that I care. And he can see that we have some, some common ground, even though we come from incredibly different backgrounds. I just, this guy right here, out of all the cases I've had, means so much to me that he is empowered in some way and gets his life back. He is alive for some kind of reason, y'all. I'm getting goosebumps talking about it. He is alive for some kind of reason. And, and this man needs options more than anyone and needs empowerment and needs love more than anyone I've ever seen in my life. I'd love to be able to help him if he's willing to try. I, I, I pray that he is. I, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I've been saying for a while now is that, uh, you know, the, the number one public safety issue is untreated trauma because everything that spins out after that is what we see in our streets. We see it in our prisons. We see it everywhere. And it's just symptoms of sick people that haven't, that have traumas that they've never dealt with. And, you know, from hypersexuality, which is, you know, causes more, uh, pregnancies, unwanted pregnancies, more kids into the system. You've got, uh, you know, everything that, that, that spurs off of that. And we're looking at this whole thing the wrong way, you know, as far as, as public safety goes. So, yeah, yeah I agree. So I don't know. I think that's a, a good point to end it on. We're, we're at one Oh seven plus I'm going to keep you for a little bit after this to, to talk to you for a second. Is there anything that uh, you guys want to end with or, or put out there before, uh, before we, we close David? I just, thank, thank you guys. And just thank you for the work that you're doing. Dave, and thank you, Sean, for giving, providing this platform for us to have these conversations and, and really find solutions together. So yeah. I hope going forward, Shana, that there are people in your caseload that you, you can help get to the other side academy and let's see if we can, uh, you know, save some lives. I think you're, it's, it's not too often that you run across a federal prosecutor or anybody in, in your space that has the heart that you do to try to help people like us uh, become better. So kudos to you. Thank it you. says a lot about who you are and a lot about your character. It, it's a Thank pleasure you. to meet you. I'm glad that we did. Perfect. And Sean, with your story and what you're doing today, you're going to make a difference. You already have, I'm sure, over the years that you've been out and all the people you've talked to and getting your podcast started and, and branching out. And, and uh, you probably help more people than you could ever even imagine just doing exactly what you're doing right now. So again, kudos to you. I like both of you and we're going to stay in contact for a long time going forward because I'm here doing this. Shana, you're there doing that. Sean, you're doing your thing, but ultimately we're all in the same business of helping people become better, improving the human condition. And I consider you both friends now and it's an honor. Well, it's thanks, David. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Shana, for for joining me, uh, joining us, and uh, David. Uh, dude, it's amazing, man. You're you're an amazing speaker. You're very powerful in your message, and uh, you know I I look forward to working with you some more. So uh, this is awesome, man. I, I I've never in in all of the interviews that I've done, and I've got about I would say what seventy eight out, and another over fifty waiting to come out. Um, this is the only one that I ever got nervous for. Uh, and I, I <laughs> whew, there it goes again. <clears throat> awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Anyways. Um, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. You're, thank you're you. welcome. And thank you.
All right, guys. Um, that's enough for me. And, uh, <laughs> we'll catch, we'll catch you on, uh, uh, we'll catch you later. Thank you Thanks. again for being a listener and for, uh, just, just thanks. You've been listening to the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast. Sean is a single dad, a union blue collar guy, and he spent time in federal and state prison for drug trafficking and fraud. When he was released from prison in 2006, all he had was the clothes on his back, a bag of mail, and some paperwork. Since then, he's turned his life around and shares the struggles and successes on this podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we hope you were moved to connect to the show. Book a guest spot. For merch, Patreon, PayPal, and social media links, go to linktr.ee slash nowhere to go but up. On Instagram at nowhere to go but up now. On Twitter at but up now. On the YouTube channel at nowhere to go but up podcast. See you next time.